Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. I'm Erica Pandey, in for Nala Boodoo. Here's what we're covering today. How to talk to your kids about climate change. Plus, a new, shorter number to reach the suicide prevention hotline. But first, today's one big thing. The second phase of war in Ukraine. Russian troops have surrounded the last remaining Ukrainian stronghold in the city of Mariupol early Thursday morning. President Putin has ordered his forces not to storm a massive steel plant in the city where about 1,000 civilians are sheltering. This comes days after Ukrainian President Zelensky announced the long-awaited Russian offensive in the Donbas region has begun. This attack could be a decisive second phase of the war. As we enter week nine of Russia's invasion, Axios World Editor Dave Lawler joins us with the details. Hey, Dave. Good morning, Erica. Dave, can you catch us up on which areas of Ukraine are under Russian control or almost Russian control right now? Right. So if we take a step back to the start of this campaign, you'll remember uh, that Russia basically tried to attack across four different fronts on most of the major cities across Ukraine all at once. It was this lightning strike that, you know, the Pentagon thinks Putin hoped would be accomplished within the first week of the war. That didn't happen, but they've now pulled those troops back, except for this southeastern Donbass region. And that's where they're really concentrating forces. This is the area where there was already fighting dating back to 2014. And pro-Russian separatists held about one third of this Donbass region heading into the war. And Russian troops have steadily made some gains in this area. This is the area that's contested right now. Obviously, nowhere more so than Mariupol, this port city um, that has come under real strain over eight weeks and is now virtually in Russian control, except for the steel plant, as you mentioned. That is a pretty significant victory for Putin. It's the biggest city he will have taken in the entire offensive so far, and it's the third biggest city in this Donbass region. Uh, The first two were already in Russian hands, and so this would be a pretty significant moment for Putin if that city is firmly now in his control. How does this moment in Mariupol change the strategy for Putin in this war? So there's a couple different factors here. One is that they've poured a lot of troops into trying to take this city. And if they are able to hold it, they can now start to move some of those troops north and and engage them in this battle for the Donbass that we're expecting. So there's a manpower part of this that's significant. There's also the fact that Russia has not had a lot of victories to be able to, uh, you know, keep its troops motivated, to keep its population engaged with the war. Uh, So just on a symbolic level, taking a pretty major population center and a key port city in this crucial Donbass region would be a big morale boost potentially for the Russian forces. And so perhaps the fall of Mariupol could be something that he can say, okay, look, this war has not perhaps gone exactly according to plan, uh, but we do have this city and we are going to, quote, liberate all of the Donbass, which is now his stated goal for this war. And as you've said, the the Donbass has been contentious. Ukrainian troops have been fighting in this region for years now. How does this affect how they defend this part of the country? Right. So this is the part of the country where there has already been a war since 2014. Ukrainian troops are pretty well dug in across a lot of this area. Uh, They're fortifying cities and towns. They know this terrain. 
The Russian troops, to a certain extent, know this terrain because they've been fighting there too. It's less urban. Uh, it's flatter in a lot of areas. And so that could also play to uh, Russia's advantage when they're trying to roll in tanks across this region. So the geography is slightly different than uh, the areas around Kyiv, for example. And also, this is an area that borders Russia. So Russia's supply lines, their command and control, this is going to stretch right back into Russia. And we might not see some of the same problems with Russia getting overextended and isolated as it advanced across the country. Before I let you go, President Biden authorized an additional $800 million in aid along with other Western leaders for Ukraine. Is it enough? Zelensky says no. He's making daily, hourly appeals for more. Basically, the situation that he's in is that Russia is reconstituting and re- re-equipping uh, this force that it's moving into the Donbass region. He's asking for additional weaponry. He is getting some of it. There are helicopters now heading there from the United States. There's a lot of artillery going into Ukraine. If more is promised, and we're expecting more to be announced by President Biden very, very soon, how long is this window going to be open where it can it can be shipped into the country and it can be transported by Ukrainian forces across from the west all the way to this southeastern region and up to the front lines? Dave Lawler is Axios' world editor. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Erica. In a moment, Nyla is back with another answer to your climate change questions. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boudou. Tomorrow is Earth Day. And as we've been gathering listener questions about climate change, many of you with kids might be wondering how to talk to your children about this. Here's Jessica, a mom of three from West Michigan. I am scared for my kids. I'm scared for my grandkids. I mean, here in our house, we recycle. We buy a lot of gently used clothing, toys, furniture. We don't litter. We do beach cleanups in our community. But what is enough and what is actually going to make a difference? We asked science consultant Claire Seeley to answer this question for Jessica and her family. What's really interesting and brilliant is that your listener is teaching their children about the three R's, about reducing, reusing and recycling. They're teaching their children that the choices we make as consumers have an impact on our planet. There's a note of caution, really, I think we need to have here, that actually it's everyone's responsibility. This burden cannot and should not rest solely on the shoulders of our young people. But there are lots of things that we can all be doing, adults and children alike. Taking positive action will help your children to feel more in control and give them hope. You might encourage your children to really connect with nature. Our relationship with nature helps us to understand our connection to the wider world. It helps us to see the bigger picture. Your children might think about how they can make a home for nature, how they can make places where plants and animals can thrive. Some children feel a great sense of eco-anxiety about the future. What's really important as parents and as carers is that we open up dialogue. We need to make time for our youngsters to talk about climate change. We need to give them an opportunity to voice their concerns. So you need to make time regularly to talk about climate change. 
not just as a one-off thing, because actually children will probably want to return to the subject. I think allow them to lead the discussion, to ask the questions and air the things that are on their minds. It's okay not to know, but what's really important, I think, is to cherish those questions and find out together um, and learn together about the environment. We can give children a voice. We can show them how we can all take positive action to make the world a better place. And let's all hope for a brighter future. Claire Seeley is a UK-based science and education consultant. If you have questions about climate change, you can text them to me at 202-918-4893. One last thing you may have missed. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline will have a new, shorter number in the next three months. Phone service providers will be required to route calls or texts sent to 988 to the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Unfortunately, right now, we're seeing suicide in this country at its highest level and rising, with LGBTQ youth more than four times as likely than their peers to attempt suicide. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit focused on preventing suicide of LGBTQ youth. A new poll they shared exclusively with Axios shows that almost 70% of respondents hadn't heard about this change in the hotline number. The 988 change is set to take effect by July 16th. Until then, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, you can call the lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning. On the Against the Rules podcast, bestselling author Michael Lewis takes a hard look at what's happened to fairness in American life. He's explored referees and coaches, and now he's tackling a new group, experts. Michael asks, why is a country that's so good at creating experts so bad at taking their advice? He'll dive to the depths of the sea, swing by the playing field, and venture onto the stock market floor to leave you thinking differently about the experts in our society. Listen to Against the Rules wherever you get your podcasts.